Let's open together in God's Word to the second chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. We could begin reading at verse 4. I'll read through verse 15. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. This is the Word of God. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain in the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. There he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. There it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where... There's gold, and the gold of that land is good. Elium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Amen. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on his word. You've delighted our hearts, O Lord, by the first chapter of Genesis and all that it contains. As we move further into Genesis chapter 2, delight our hearts still more. Teach us, encourage us, instruct us, reveal yourself, give us yet new things to see about you, about ourselves, what you would have us to do in this world you've made. This is our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen. The relationship of chapter 1 and chapter 2 is, well, it's a fascinating point for many and for a very long time. You know well by now Genesis 1 gives us an overview of the creation of the cosmos. It opens with that summary statement in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then over six days... We're told how God arranged his creation work 
bringing all things into being in the space of those six days. Chapter 2, as we have it in our Bibles, tells us about the seventh day, as we know well by now. And I'm among those many, in fact, who are mystified by that editor sometime well after Moses was inspired to write this, who divided the chapter this way between chapter 1 and chapter 2 uh, to separate day 7 from all the other days. You know that the chapter and verse divisions of the Bible are not inspired. They came by a, some helpful servants of God much later, and uh, we don't always have to agree with their judgment calls about what makes for a good start to a new section. Uh, in verse 4, that language, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, that's going to be an expression that occurs, these are the generations specifically, several times through Genesis, and it announces a new section, a new part of the account of Genesis. So we are not alone in treating Genesis 2 as really particularly commencing in earnest in verse 4. But there, God begins to tell a part of the story of creation all over again. We're going to be told of the making of man. Then we'll be told of the making of a garden for man, a making of a woman as man's helper. We'll be told about the settling of Adam and his wife into the work that God has given them to do. We're going to be seeing that in chapter 2, and someone might ask, well, I thought we already were told about the creation of man and woman on the sixth day. Remember, we, we heard that they were made in God's image and they were given a great task to fill the earth and subdue the earth. So why are we going back? It's really important that we know that in chapter 2 we are going back. We're rewinding the tape, if you will. Though that's an outdated metaphor, isn't it? Rewinding the tape. Uh, we're going back in the account to that moment on the sixth day when God not only created Adam and Eve and commissioned Adam and Eve, but now we're going to see how he does so in the context of entering into fellowship with them as their creator by means of covenant. Uh, chapter 1 is about the great creator God. Chapter 2 is going to focus on a different angle. God, the great covenant-making God. Uh, not the first to make the observation that the one we're introduced to in Genesis 1 is the transcendent God over all that he's made. And the one we're reintroduced to in chapter 2 is the creator in his Imminence, as we sometimes say, his coming close, drawing near, and dealing with tender, loving care. With those two legged creatures that are his favorite of all his creatures. So, friends, what's ahead for us as we look at chapter two is uh, I say to you, it's going to be delightful all in its own right. Another picture of God at work in a world that is still untouched by sin. Chapter 2 gives us another picture of that world and it's going to show us a creator who's also a companion, 
of his creature, man. So this morning, let's focus first on the land that is in need of cultivation. And then we're going to look at God's provision of two things, a gardener and a garden. So first point, a wilderness land. You see that in verse 5 and 6. Let me read it again. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. This is all uh, being told in preparation for what's going to be revealed in verse 7, God's making of the man. But let's think about what's being said in verse 5 and 6. There's a certain state of affairs that are being described for us. A certain state of affairs where there are things that are lacking, at least from our perspective now. There's no vegetation growing yet, at least of certain kinds. No bush of the field, no small plant of the field. We'll come back to that. Uh, there's no provision of rain. So even if there were those things growing, they wouldn't yet be able to survive. And very significantly, there's no man to work the ground yet. To those who were originally, and for much of human history reading this, they would have known exactly what working the ground meant as these words were received by God's people in agrarian societies. It would mean to break up the ground, uh, to plant seed in the ground, to water the seed, uh, to prune, to harvest, and all the other things. Now, the absence of all those things amounts to something we're very familiar with. We actually have a word for it. Wilderness. That's what's being described for us in verse 5 and 6. There were parts of this planet, sorry, there are parts of this planet that to this day are wilderness, untouched by human hands. Some years ago on the Discovery Channel, there used to be a show called Man vs. Wild, it was a big hit among some of the traces. Not all, but some. Uh, Bear Grylls was the hero of this story. I think, if I remember correctly, what I was told, he was a former British special ops guy. Uh, but he's dropped into various places on the planet. And I mean dropped, like by helicopter in some cases, dropped with his camera crew in order to survive in the wild. Well, that's what this world is at this point on day six. Notice it's beautiful. Indeed, it's glorious. But it's wild. No roads and bridges. No cities or farms. Land and animals. Now, children, when you think of the wild, you probably have some thoughts that come to your mind that wouldn't apply in this situation. You think of wild animals, for example, and you think of the wilderness. You think of things that could hurt you, animals that could bite you, or bugs that could uh, uh, sting you, or such things as that. That's not part of this wilderness, that threat to life. But on the other hand, kids, you shouldn't think of on day six, at this point in the day, the world being like some big zoo where the animals are just gathered waiting to be looked at, petted. It's not like a big park where everything is just beautifully arranged. It's an uncultivated and untamed world just like parts of the world are to this day. I want you to specifically notice that we're told of the absence of certain kinds of plants 
that are due to the absence of humans. So we're told there was no bush or small plant of the field growing. Why? Because there was no man yet made at that point on day six. Now listen carefully. Apparently, there's a whole world of living plants that God had in mind for our planet that yet required cultivation by his creature, man, in order for them to live, to exist. And man doesn't yet exist, so those plants don't exist either. Now, that's the resolution, my friends, to what has struck some as a contradiction between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Chapter 1 talks about the plants of the earth broadly being created on the third day, and chapter 2 is now talking about plants being absent there on the sixth day, and some have said, what a hopeless contradiction in the Bible, especially those who are skeptics of the trustworthiness of the Bible. Now, it would be, indeed, quite embarrassing if the God who made heaven and earth couldn't keep his story straight about how he went about doing it. It would be embarrassing if the inspired authors of Scripture couldn't see glaring contradictions within a few verses of each other. But here's a more trusting and respectful listening to the text. Just as the creation, I'll remind you, of the land animals, we're told was divided between the beasts, the wild things, and the livestock. Just as there was that distinction among the animals, we're being shown there's a difference between wild plants and what you might say the garden varieties of plants. So on day three, all manner of plant life does spring up on the land worldwide, but not the kind of plants that can only grow under the care of a gardener or a farmer. There's some confirmation of that reconciling of these accounts when uh, in chapter 3, in God's words of judgment on Adam, he says, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you the ground, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Same term that's being used in our text. The plants of the field, clearly plants that are growing up as a result of Adam's gardening, or we might say farming. So folks, this is how you should look at what verse 5 and 6 are doing. They're pointing out something that's missing in God's good creation that's only going to be remedied by his final creation, his masterpiece, which is man. The world God has made is magnificent as a wilderness, but it will get even better once man is there to do what God intends for him to do. Now, that's a point. I've had occasion to remark on this before uh, that's lost on many in our day. There's uh, no mistaking the fact that man, the human species, is dependent on the earth There's no mistaking that, is there? We're dependent on the earth. No one questions that. But here the scripture is speaking of a certain kind of dependence that the earth has on man. That is that the planet, in order for it to bring forth its full potential as God intended, well, there's going to have to be a race of men living within it. 
One of you handed me an article last week about the rise of the anti-humanist movement. Have you heard of this? I'll read from that article. From Silicon Valley boardrooms to rural communes to academic philosophy departments, a seemingly inconceivable idea is being seriously discussed. That the end of humanity's reign on the earth is imminent and that we should welcome it. Anti-humanists are convinced that the worst thing for our planet has been the human race, particularly in recent uh, generations. And you are familiar with the fact, of course, that there are many uh, dystopian visions of the future, whether it's nuclear war, environmental crisis, uh, there are threats to the human race. This is a particular kind of radical environmentalism, as I understand it, that says, you know what? A world without man, good riddance. It's only our own humility that would call us to say that. We have been the worst thing to happen on this planet. Now, here's what I want to note to you. From a biblical perspective, these anti-humanists have got hold of part of the truth. This world would be better off without man in his depravity. It's because of sin that the whole creation groans. And we are the sinners on the planet, men. That's how Paul speaks of it. And that's why, brothers and sisters, there's coming a time when the whole world will be cleansed of all evildoers. That's how Jesus puts it. So from a biblical perspective, sinful man is the source of the world's problems. The biblical account of the flood will make this spectacularly clear. But I want you to see God's ultimate solution is not going to be the extinction of the human race. It's going to be the restoration of the human race to his God-appointed role of caregiver to the planet. So in Genesis 2... This earth that God has made is unable to reach its full glory until there's a man to work that earth. So the world without man, well, it would be nothing but jungle and wilderness. Glorious, but not near the glory it would have under man's wise stewardship. This much to continue to press a biblical way of thinking of man and the earth. But let's move on looking at a wilderness land, which is the uh, setup for us, what comes next. Let's look at the provision of a gardener. Verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. Verse 7 is chock full of teaching about what it means to be human. So there's so much there, actually, I'm going to circle back around and have a whole sermon on just verse 7. For the moment, what I'm interested in particularly is the context of verse 7 and how verse 7 comes to us as God's provision for what's needed in the earth. Adam is represented to us as he's created in verse, or sorry, in chapter 2, he's represented to us as a gardener. 
That's what's needed. This is clear from what has preceded verse 7. There was no man to work the ground. It's clear from what follows verse 7 all the way up to uh, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So the context of the creation of man in chapter 2, well, God needs a gardener for the earth that he's made. Now, there's something specific that our text wants to point to as needed that a gardener can provide, and I love it, and I confess to you, I'm still reflecting on the significance of it. God's gardener is the solution especially to something that is missing, that's utterly essential to life, water. You see the emphasis on water as we begin verse 5? First we're told there's no rain. God has not caused it to rain. But there is something else. Look at verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now this mist, oh, that's not an easy one. It's an obscure word. It's used almost nowhere else in the Bible, and the only other place that it's used is also quite difficult, and so there are varying understandings. But this much seems to be clear. This source of water is the opposite of rain. It's not coming down from above. It's coming from below, and that's why the ESV adds, you could interpret this springs, or some of you have streams. I think that's probably actually a better rendering. And if it is, well, we know exactly what's being spoken of. The world that God made is watered, but it's watered selectively. There are oases. There are creeks and rivers and springs and all the rest. And there is opportunity in those places for the vegetation to thrive, but everywhere else, well, there's no hope of plant life. And I think what verse 6 is making clear to us is that if there was a man on the earth, those sources of water could be used to cultivate those plants that have yet to come into existence. He would work the ground, which is to include, he carries some water. Irrigation, that's something very familiar to Farming, even to this day, I understand some of the most fertile parts of the world actually still rely on man-engineered irrigation. Again, I want to continue to think about this focus on water in Genesis 2. This is what I want you to see. Adam is being given a godlike job as he is made to be God's gardener. He can't create rain, but he can do the next best thing. He can be godlike as he works and waters the ground. And with water, among other means, draws life out of the ground. What a godlike vocation. I got to say, as I've thought about my ancestor Adam created to be God's gardener, I have to wonder, should I take up gardening? I mean, as of yet, 
not part of my uh, extracurricular activities. I know it's different for many of you. I find myself wondering, will I continue to be a stunted human being until I take up the primeval vocation? Gardening. It's what man was first created to do. Now, I, I comfort myself that humanity's ability to free many of us up to do other things is part of this broader commission of God in taking dominion, but there's still something about the work that continues in the earth that with a variety of different means is doing exactly what God called Adam to do. In fact, what he made him to do. One of you were telling me recently about the scientifically measurable health benefits of having your hands in the soil. Uh, not just therapeutic, uh, psychological benefits, though they are there, but even the good kind of bacteria and all that stuff I'm not very familiar with. I actually believe it. I believe it all. But just to make this clear, when God told Adam to take dominion over all the earth, that would include a lot more than gardening or even farming. It includes, brothers and sisters, we're revisiting that commission from chapter 1. It would include all our cultivating of the stuff of this world in life-sustaining ways, being caretakers and stewards of God's creation. And if we can enlarge that term gardening to include everything that would ultimately be represented and encompassed by that stewarding of the world in life-sustaining ways, well, we're all sons of Adam called to a godlike work that you could speak of very broadly as gardening. Here's what you should remember. In whatever work you're doing, the Lord has called you. Before man was created to garden, well, God was the gardener. God was the one bringing life out of the earth and sustaining life by the earth. This won't be just edifying, I trust, for those with green thumbs in our midst. We think about God creating Adam as a gardener. For the rest of our time, I want to talk about the provision then of a garden. Look at verse 8 now. The Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed and out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. goes on to mention the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to which we will, of course, need to return. But I want you to not miss this. In all the things that God has done, spectacular things that he's done, on or in this creation week, he's done a couple things now on this sixth day that are special acts of creation. Again, we'll be returning to verse 7. He does something special as he creates man from the ground. That's a, a distinct and special kind of creation. And now he does something also special, distinct. He creates this garden, 
So if you think back to uh, day three, God created on day three not only the land, but also the vegetation on the land, broadly speaking, and he did it the way he did the other things in the six days. He simply spoke, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so, but it's spoken of differently on day six as it's recorded in chapter two. Do you see how it's put? And the Lord God planted a garden. Sort of like, and God formed the man and breathed into him. This is different like kinds of language. This is using human-like terms to describe what God did. It's a very hands-on way of speaking of God. These are particularly special, we could even say intimate, acts of creation. Now, there's still the supernatural element because verse 9 tells us, out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Well, trees take a lot of time to grow. These apparently grew in a mere portion of a day. But kids, what God causes to spring up in that special place, that special part of creation on day six, after he's created man, what he, cre- what he creates to spring up is, oh, it's the best trees. It's the fruit trees. of All kinds of delicacies. These kind of trees represented two things in my boyhood, kids. When I was your age, two things I love to do, climb and eat. Oh, a fruit tree was the best when you love to climb and you love to eat. I remember many a day sitting in an apple tree, eating apples that were not quite ripe and really doing okay on the whole for all that green apple high life that I enjoyed. Kids, when you think of fruit trees that God puts in this orchard, that's the word we have for it now, this orchard garden, you should think of, of course, apples and pears and peaches and plums. You should think of all the citrus trees we think of, oranges and grapefruits and lemons and limes. You should think of your favorite kind of bite-sized fruit, like cherries and figs and, when I was a boy, mulberries. You should think of those... Far away fruits like mangoes and coconuts and pomegranates and avocados that aren't actually so very far away in our global economy. Don't forget tree nuts. You should think of almonds and walnuts and cashews and the king of all nuts, pecans. And of course, if you were a Hebrew, first hearing of these things, you might think, Of all the trees in the garden, olive trees, well, they would have certainly been well represented. Kids, you know that we have all kinds of fruit trees in this world that you and I have never even heard of. Maybe you have heard of the Jabba fruit. That's a tree. Or the Carambola fruit. That's also a tree, I read. The Rambutan fruit. The sapodilla fruit, the soursop tree. In any case, God puts with a special flourish on his creative genius all these delectable kinds of fruit-bearing trees 
in one place. And he creates, guys, not just a garden. A garden palace for Adam. In the days when Genesis was first received by God's people, that's who they would have thought of when they thought of gardens. Kings have gardens. Wealthy people have gardens. This is what God gives to man. I want you to see two things about God in light of this provision of this garden for Adam. The first thing I want you to see, of course, is his love. His love for man. We're seeing the creature's tender concern for his creature man's comfort. He doesn't just create a world full of delights everywhere the eye can see, but he creates a portion of that world that showcases all that could one day be in that world, and he gives that little showcase to Adam on his very first day of life. I've been spending some time on the Airbnb website because I'm planning an anniversary trip with my wife for this summer, and oh, wow, the hosts really know how to catch your eye. They vary, apparently. I'm new to this whole thing. But some of them not only provide a a room or even a whole house, but they have a welcome basket, chocolate and champagne. And when you're uh, getting dizzy looking at all the options, well, that works. Actually, your eye is drawn to the chocolate and the champagne. Here's how you could think of the Garden of Eden. It's the whole world that God's giving Adam. But Eden is his welcome basket. It's conveying the creator's pleasure. Adam's presence. It's conveying the creator's desire for Adam to be comfortable. (laughs) I don't think I'm just being sentimental right here. This is the first of many personal and intimate expressions of TLC by the Creator for his favorite creature, man. What is man that you are mindful of him? The psalmist asks, and we have countless occasions ask that question as God continues this pattern of tender, loving care. What is man that you're so mindful of him? And that mindfulness is on display right here. You could say Adam is being pampered from the very start of his existence. That's what the word Eden references. It, it, from a word meaning pleasant or pleasure sometimes translated paradise. Folks, this is where I want to say to us, I know, I know, we're not exactly in the Garden of Eden anymore. But do you have eyes to see countless ways that you're a pampered creature too? Oh, because our God has not changed. He has an eye 
for your comfort, not just the most basic necessities of life. And he makes provisions in so many ways. You know that expression we use, creature comforts? It refers to what God provides Adam there in the garden. All the things that make for our physical and bodily comforts. And my encouragement at this moment is to, once again, say, open your eyes, brothers and sisters. Open your eyes wide. Take note. God has placed you in a garden as well. Even in this broken world, such abundance, such variety of good things, doing more than just sustain life, bringing us comfort. Joanna Grove, a missionary associate in Karamoja, wrote about a widow woman, it's in your bulletin from last week, who's suffering immensely. She's old. She has so many sicknesses there in northern Uganda that are chronic and seemingly incurable. She nursed her son through his death from a a tumor on the neck. And she's been abused by her family, even disowned by her children. Her name is Angelina. A missionary associate spoke of how this woman says constantly, God is so good. God is so good. God is so good. The God who formed a garden for Adam is the same God who is so good in so many ways, pampering us out of love for us. Open your eyes, brothers and sisters. Live lives overflowing gratitude to our garden-making God. But here's the second thing I want you to see in God as he makes provision of a garden. Second thing is not just his love for man, but his mentoring of man. It is not without significance that God creates man first. And then the garden. Does this strike you? At least it's interesting. If God's sole purpose was just the creature comforts of Adam, you might have expected him to do it in the reverse order. He'd create the garden first, and then he'd create Adam. The hostess doesn't wait until you arrive to start getting your room ready, right? But the sequence is actually quite significant. Verse 7, God formed man... And then verse 8, God planted a garden, and there he put the man he had formed. The gardener is made before the garden. Kids, what do you think Adam was doing? Well, Adam was planting this garden. What do you think he was doing, kids? Well, I think it's safe to say what he was doing. He was watching. I think it's also safe to say that was the whole point. God made Adam first so that the gardener could see how to garden. God was demonstrating to Adam the work he was going to hand over to Adam. Consider this. God could have called everything into being there in the Garden of Eden by voice command, but we're told he planted the garden. And that human way of speaking, as we've seen, has everything to do that Adam was right there. 
Adam, the future planter, farmer, gather, uh, gardener, was watching God do what he was going to continue to do. So there is loving consideration on God's part. But there's also some instructing. I'm calling it mentoring. Because God is going to say, Adam, I want you to maintain this garden that I've made. And watch this. God's going to say, in effect, I want you to turn this whole world into something like this garden. Folks, the Garden of Eden was not just a place of beauty and comfort. It was not just home for Adam. You could call it Adam's beachhead. Adam was going to be tasked with taking that start that God himself had done to tame the wild and to cultivate what God had made and he was to enlarge that beauty to fill the earth. Now, I think we can deduce that to start with just from putting chapter 1 and chapter 2 together. Back in chapter 1, we heard that God told Adam to subdue the earth. That's a global mission. Chapter 2, we're told he is told to work and keep the garden. That's a much more specific garden mission. Well, which is it? Well, of course, it's both. The whole earth was destined to become something like this garden. And notice, who's going to make that happen? Not God. Not directly. He planted the garden. Adam. Adam's descendants. That's the real man versus wild. That's God's calling to Adam. Listen to Richard Pratt on this topic. Despite all the work God had done in the first week of creation, he had not turned the entire world into a wondrous paradise. Genesis chapter 2 draws attention to the fact there was actually only one place on earth that could be called a paradise. God put humanity in his wondrous holy garden to serve him, but God also called his royal image bearers to multiply numerically and to fill not just the Garden of Eden, but the entire earth. He ordained them to have dominion, not just over the Garden of Eden, but over the entire earth as well. You see him putting together Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He continues, human beings were to multiply, to spread out, to turn the entire earth into God's garden. So there's Adam, newly minted, watching as God fashions a garden from the wilderness, like a son watching his father. Being readied for his own task, which will in fact be the story of the rest of human history. That's a pretty big theme. I'm going to bring it down to this more specific thought for you as we close. This impacts what you're going to do in this new week, 
in at least this way. You know those creature comforts that God has provided you that you're so thankful for? God has also put you in the business of providing those creature comforts for those around you. Just like he did Adam. Consider this. I don't know how big a garden Eden was. I know this. It wasn't big enough for all the descendants of Adam and Eve. It wasn't big enough for the many thousands that we're going to read about in the book of Genesis. It wasn't big enough for the eight billion that now live on the planet. You know what this meant? As Adam worked the ground in imitation of his creator, he did so in order to make the creature comforts that he was enjoying available to those who would join him in the earth. He was doing this. He was working the ground in order that his grandchildren would be able to enjoy God's garden. That's what fathers and mothers you're doing. That's what our children are being taught to do. That's what all of us are doing in as much as we live in fellowship and support of one another. We're not only savoring the garden, but as a token of God's love for us, but we're seeking to be good stewards of what he's given, that others might be blessed with us by our work. We're imitating God. And on the seventh day, he himself planted a garden. What a noble calling, brothers and sisters. What a noble calling to be created as God's gardeners. Amen. Let's pray together. No lack, O Lord, of evidence that you love us. Even when there is suffering that afflicts us, you've made abundantly clear how tender and loving you are. We thank you for all garden-like comforts of our lives. We thank you. Open our eyes to them. Even at the most unlikely moments, we add. Open our eyes and delight our hearts by your love. And grant us this high sense of privilege. We've been created to do what you do in our own human capacities. And to do it out of love for others as you've done for us. And to work, to share, to glorify your own name by what uniquely can be done in this earth, by those who bear your image. Refresh our hearts by all these things and encourage us in our noble callings we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.